Amen. Why don't you take your Bibles and turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah chapter 44. Book of Isaiah chapter 44. We are going to be looking at verses 6 through 8 today. Isaiah chapter 44, beginning in verse 6. This is what the Word of God says to us. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God beside me who is like me. Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation and let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God beside me? Or is there any other rock I know of none? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we know that that rock is the name of your covenant faithfulness, your stability that you provide for your people. And we know that the rock is also revealed in the Son who said, if you build your life on me, you will be like a man who built his life on the rock. So Lord, we pray that you would grant us to see the greatness of your name here, that you would grant us to know your faithfulness to us in every season and in every generation, because you are a faithful God, you are a good God, You never cease to do good to your people. We pray today that that goodness would come shining through and that we would learn the lesson that you wanted Israel to learn from long ago that there is no other rock. And so we pray, Lord, encourage our hearts today. Lord, lift up our heads. Encourage the downcast. Lord, would you minister to those that are plagued today with various fears and anxieties and worries the things that can threaten to choke out your word, the busyness of life, the trials, the tribulations that so easily surround us, that come to us in every form and different kinds. And help us, Lord, in the midst of our, the whirlwind of our turbulent world to seek our refuge in you alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, this passage of Scripture is very important for where we're headed as a church because we're going to be going through the book of Isaiah, starting a whole new chapter, a whole new journey in our exposition, if God is willing. And this chapter here, this section actually that we're focusing in on, is going to be one of those common refrains throughout the book in other words, this is the lesson that the prophet, God, through the prophet, is wanting to tell the people of Israel that they need to learn in the midst of all of their tribulation and trials and all of the threatening cataclysm that is coming upon the nation. What God wants the nation to know is that He is their rock. 
that He is the one that they are to look to in the midst of all of their calamities and all of their problems. And the encouraging thing for you and I, this is a little bit of a point of hermeneutics here, is that the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, clearly gives us, uh, if you would, it gives us there the analog that we need in order to identify our lives today in the 21st century with the 8th century B.C. prophet (laughs) way back in ancient Israel to say, what Isaiah is saying back there matters to me right now, right here. Because as Paul tells the Corinthians, what happened to Israel as a nation was for your example. And so we can... We can, uh, we can milk the book of Isaiah for all it's worth for our Christian life. Now, there are some steps that we will go through, uh, depending on the text that we're in in Isaiah, that get us to that point. But the, the, but, but the, the, the glorious thing is, is that this book, though it was not written to us, was written for us. It is for our good, for our benefit, so that we can profit from what is being said here. And again, what... Uh, what gave rise to this text, just a little bit of historical background here, we won't do a lot of this because we don't have time, but what gave rise to this text is you understand in this section of scripture uh, here in chapters 44, it, this is a whole new section of the book of Isaiah, especially after chapter 39. It's sort of like the place where the Assyrian threat has subsided and now the Babylonian threat has emerged, which is far greater than the Assyrian threat. In other words, the whole nation is now thrown into the calamitous prospect of a nation that is even more threatening than the Assyrians. And the Assyrians were extremely uh, dangerous and powerful. And now the Babylonians are coming because of sins, uh, because of Israel's sin and their unbelief and their covenant breaking. And so you're a little Jewish family in the ancient city. You know, you have this little house on the outskirts, let's say there of Jerusalem. And you're hearing about, you know, the threat of impending a war, and you're hearing about the king of Babylon coming to take down Judah. And you saw what the Assyrian army already did to Israel in the north. And you say, well, these foreign powers that are out there, this is real. I mean, Israel, Samaria, Damascus, they all fell to the Assyrians. And so what's coming with the Babylonians is reported to be, according to the newspapers, you know, if you would, According to the newsreels, what they're saying is this Babylonian threat is even far greater than what happened to Samaria and Damascus and Israel. What are we going to do? And so there you are huddled around in your little home with your family, gathered around the dinner table, and you're about to say a prayer for supper, and you are gripped with a sense of doom. The whole nation was. The whole nation was uh, sort of... uh, uneasy about what was coming, the times that they were living in, how turbulent they were. And so this is sort of the worldview of the common Jewish person at that time. So now can you imagine in the midst of that, the prophet Isaiah goes into the royal courts of the nation and prophesies to the nation. See, as we'll learn about uh, who Isaiah was as a prophet, he's not anything like some of the other prophets. Uh, The prophet Amos was a shepherd boy of Tekoa, and so he was out in the fields tending his flocks. That's not Isaiah. Isaiah is an urban man. He's in the city. 
He's in the mix. Uh, he knows what's going on in the town. He knows what's going on politically. Uh, and so he has his finger on the pulse of what's happening to the nation. And he also probably, because of the fact that he's the son of Amos, he probably is of a royal descent. And so that even uh, increases the probability that he had uh, unique access into the royal court and into the proceedings of the of the government of Judah. And so, anyway, but that, that's important just to know the access that, that uh, Isaiah had and the proximity that I, Isaiah had to influence the kings of Judah. You see that, for example, right? In uh, 2 Kings chapter 15 to 19, you see uh, the development there of the kingdom and what happens. And as soon as the kingdom be- gets in trouble, King Hezekiah sends his people out to the prophet Isaiah to get some sort of encouragement, some encouraging word from the Lord. And so they sh- you, sh- you see the access that he had to the nation. Now, why do we need this? Why do we need to hear this message right now? Well, because I would say that like Judah, you and I have, uh, we have similar problems all around us if you have eyes to see. Let me tell you what uh, the different ways that I see that we sort of can relate not only to the prophet, to the people, but to the message. Number one, just like Israel or just like Judah, more accurately, because remember, uh, at this time the kingdoms are divided. So you have Israel's in the north, Judah is in the south. Uh, never the two shall meet. No, <laughs> they, they didn't like each other at this point. The point Isaiah is writing, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom were in constant conflict. They did not like each other. They were constantly backstabbing each other, trying to get some sort of foreign power to sort of leverage their power against one another. It was awful during this time. And so the southern kingdom, Judah, Jerusalem, that's really where all this is going on. But the same could be said of Israel in the north. They were inundated with false doctrine, false teachers, false prophets, false religions, ultimately what the Old Testament would identify as idolatry. And so uh, you and I today live in the same sort of pseudo-spiritual age. There are false gods, false teachers, false doctrines everywhere, conflicts without, conflicts within. There's all sorts of theological and doctrinal issues. Uh, You know, if you look at what's going on uh, all over the church today, uh, you know, problems are not going away. Uh, you know, they're just not. And you can see this come in different forms and sizes down to the people knocking on your door and wanting to talk to you. You know, these 16-year-old elders, you know, that have so much wisdom and uh, want to invite you to their new religion, you know. or it, That all the way down to the liberalism that is seeping through the academic world and the evangelical faith. I mean, it, it, pick your poison. I mean, it's all over the place. I can stay here all day and talk about the, 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 the threats to the, to the apostolic faith, to the gospel, uh, that, that are real threats and that are rising threats all over uh, 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 the country and all over the world. I mean, we really are, uh, just to situate this in our time, we really are living in sort of the throes of a post-Christian culture where Christianity is no longer something that just can be assumed. You know, 50 years ago, you go up to some young, you know, uh, college kid and you tell them that, you know, you, you, need, you need faith, you need religion, you need, you need the Lord in your life. They know exactly what you're talking about. Christianity, Jesus Christ, you're talking about the Bible, right? You must be a Baptist or something. <laughs> Not today. Today, you mention spirituality, religion, you offer somebody something spiritual. They don't know where you're coming from. They don't know, are you talking about Islam? Are you talking about Hinduism? Are you talking, are you Jehovah Witness? I mean, where are you coming from? That we are inundated with idolatry. 
uh, today. That is something we cannot take for granted. Also, we can identify with Israel in this or with Judah in this, in that just like them, on the national level, but on the personal level for us, we too, brothers and sisters, are weak in our flesh, even as they were. And the reason this oracle has come to them is because they are tempted to trust in something other than the Lord. Uh, that, that, that statement right there, you need to really latch on to that because you must understand the prophecies of Isaiah took, uh, took place over decades of time. It didn't all happen overnight. It wasn't like Isaiah showed up and started reading Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. No, 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 no. Those prophecies that you see in that book are a collection of oracles, visions, and sayings of the prophet that took place over decades of time. And you know what happens with the passage of time? People forget. That is like the, that is like the crucial sin of Israel, right? They had forgotten their God. I mean, you see that in all the prophets. Hosea chapter 2. In Hosea chapter 2, God reminds the people, you've forgotten me. You forgot that it was me. I gave you your, your wool and your gold and your flax and your silver and your clothing and your agriculture. I fed your cows. You're eating that steak because of me. You like that ribeye? Yeah, I do. Well done. Thank you very much. Well, that came from me. It didn't come from Baal. It didn't come from the false gods. It didn't come from your own little political maneuvers that you're doing behind the scenes. That's not why your economy is secure. And I think I should mention, as an aside, that you and I, uh, as the more we go into the book of Isaiah, uh, much of what we're going to find in the book of Isaiah will become prophetically eerie of our own nation. Uh, Why? Well, because there is... A general principle, even as the prophets say, right, that um, righteousness will exalt a nation, but sin is a reproach on any people. And so as we see the rise of iniquity, as we see the rise of postmodernism, expect that we will see sort of the symptoms that we see even in the nation of Israel right here at home in the United States of America. Uh, I could just go on forever there, but I won't because i got eight pages. I'm on half a page so far. Like Israel, brothers and sisters, you and I are desperate for hope. You know why I say that? Because like Israel, you and I have been put into a covenant bond with God so that we need Him every hour. We need Him. And this is, this is the heart of it all. This is what God wanted the people to learn. Open your eyes. Recognize how much you need me. That's the fundamental problem everybody has everywhere. They don't realize how desperate they really are of the Lord. They don't recognize that He's the one that holds your breath in the palm of His hand. He's the one that sustains you and keeps you and providentially protects you. And so just like Israel, you and I, brothers and sisters, desperately need a hope that is sure and that is secure. And because of the weakness of our flesh, just like Israel, you and I can be tempted to flee to foreign coping mechanisms that are not the rock. And so we need to be reminded of this. And so what does God do in this paragraph, this pericope? He does three things. He reminds them of who He is, what He does, and what he wants. Number one, who he is. Well, look at verse 6 again with me. Who God is is revealed there in uh, 
Verse 6, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, not the Lord's Redeemer, Israel's Redeemer. Okay, don't get that confused because you may be tempted to think the King of Israel and His Redeemer, i.e. Jesus. Uh, no, that's not essentially what's going Yes, Jesus is the Redeemer, but that's not what's being said here. The Redeemer is the Redeemer of, of Israel. And then he says this, the Lord of hosts. And then he gives himself this title. I am the first and I am the last. With the result being there is no God beside me. Every single one of these divine titles, names of God are important for Israel to recall and to bring to mind who he is. Number one, Hamelech. He is the king. That's who he reveals himself to be. And as we're going to see, Lord willing, when we begin our exposition of Isaiah, when God breaks in upon the prophet Isaiah to show him the grand scope of who he is and what he's going to do, what dawns upon Isaiah is that God is a king who is enthroned in the heavens. That's who he is. And he is left struck with a vision of the royal majesty of God. And so as king, God is reminding the people of Israel that he is to govern, he is to rule, he is, he is the sovereign over their lives. And it also reminds them that he has a kingdom. And he's reminding them by the very notion that he is king of their kingdom obligations. So on and so forth. All of those kingdom uh, principles ultimately ordered and oriented the people toward their ultimate and final eschatological abode. This is all filled with so much theology. Let me just give you an example of this, though, because everything that Israel experienced geographically, physically, politically, militarily, that was all, brothers and sisters, just a mere shadow, of course, of God's true kingdom interests that will only be realized in the heavenly kingdom. What do I mean? Psalm 48 Verse 1, you may want to put something there, Isaiah chapter 44, keep something there, and then be prepared to thumb through all the passages if you'd like, or I could just read them to you. But these texts that I gather are just amazing. You know, the Old Testament is a universe. Whew, you thought the New Testament was vast and had so many different, you know, complexities and features and Oh, man, the Old Testament, right? I mean, I think that's why so many Christians don't read their Old Testament, because it's so intimidating. It's like, where do I begin, right? It's like you've got to keep your eye on the history of the development of the nation Israel, and then Israel's up here, Judah's down here, Ephraim's over there. Uh, how am I supposed to keep my eye on the ball? And then what time is this all happening? The prophets are prophesying, asking questions, and usually the answer is yes. You know, I don't know. <laughs> you know, so th- th- there's a lot of layers to understanding the Old Testament properly. And uh, we will try to sort of pull those, you know, to go layer by layer in a sense. But all of this has much to do with the future and eschatology. Listen to the words of, in terms of God's kingship and His kingdom ultimately realized in heaven above. Psalm 48 verse 1 says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is... Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Oh, it's so beautiful, right? And we can spend all day just meditating on the lordship, the kingship 
of Yahweh, but he is also revealing himself in terms of wanting the people of Israel to be reminded as he labels himself king and now redeemer. When he says redeemer, the Hebrew word goel, this uh, this Hebrew term here was always, well, I'm going to say always, but it was predominantly designed to cause Israel to remember the exodus. The exodus. So just think of it this way. Old Testament redemption has to do with the exodus. That is where God redeemed the people for himself. The word redeem just literally means to purchase, to buy to de- by deliverance, and he delivered a people out of bondage, out of Egypt. And so when God labels himself Redeemer, this is what he's talking about. Let me give you some examples. Deuteronomy, which will be in Deuteronomy here and there. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 8. Because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Again, Deuteronomy 9, verse 26, I prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord God, do not destroy your people, even your inheritance, whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. So God as Redeemer was meant to magnify the Lord's greatness, His redemptive power, and His sovereign grace, and His covenant faithfulness to His people. In Isaiah chapter 62, fast-forwarding into the eschatology of Isaiah, Isaiah, uh, and sort of a future, fourth, you know, uh, looking into into the future, the eschaton, Isaiah 62 says, Thy holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. That's what they're going to be called. They will be called sought out, a city not forsaken, sought out. You see, that's what Jesus was talking about. He chose me, I did not choose him. He sought me, I did not seek him. Why does he do this? How does he do this? Well, when it says he does this with a mighty arm, a mighty hand, it's pointing to his power. And whose power is this power? It is the Lord of hosts. And so he says he is the Redeemer of Israel. He is the Lord of hosts. He is Yahweh Savoat, which means the Lord of armies or something like that. And as a matter of fact, when this designation is used, it's used to emphasize God's ability to protect us, God's ability to keep us in the midst of our enemies. God is the Lord of the armies of Israel, but more importantly, He is the Lord of the cosmic armies. In other words, He is the Lord of the angelic beings, the angelic armies. Don't remember. I mean, don't forget. Do remember. (laughs) Remember that the Lord of hosts sent out one angel when Assyria, hundreds of thousands of soldiers, easily had the power to destroy Israel and Judah together if they wanted to. God said, I'm going to send one angel, Lord Sabaoth. He dispatches one angel, Hamelech Yahweh, the, Lord, the, the angel of the Lord. He goes in and he slaughters, one angel, slaughters almost 200,000 Assyrians in the night, just levels them. 
And that was a statement that God is making there that when God decides to break in in the affairs of human history, okay, he's not afraid of swords and shields and the clanging of you know, their uniforms or whatnot, their armor. He's, he's not afraid of them, okay? He's not afraid of the earthly armor. See, see, God has put everything within his time. God knows exactly when he's going to intrude, when he's going to intervene. Don't we need this today? I mean, it looks as if at times, I mean, I, sometimes I can just get absorbed in the news, you know, click, 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 you know and you just kind of like, man, it's getting bad out there. You know what I mean? Remember Rocket Man when he was shooting off his rocket? <laughs> shouldn't use that. The president called him Rocket Man, but you know what I mean. When, uh, when the guy over there in North Korea was shooting off his rocket, remember that? <laughs> you know, in Hawaii, just had some friends move to Hawaii, but in Hawaii, they had a false alarm. They, they kind of sent out their false alarm that rockets were coming, you know, and people just didn't know. I, I saw a video of people putting their children in storm drains because they thought the rockets were coming. In, in Hawaii. They're putting them in, you know, in the storm drain, trying to get away from the rockets. They were convinced. It went out, you know, it's just like you get an amber alert on your little, you know, device or whatever, right? I mean, they sent out a whole alert to the whole state. Get ready. Eminent impact, you know, incoming. I mean, it may seem as if God is totally out of control and allowing things that just don't make any sense to us. And why would God do this? And that's exactly where Israel is at. They need to be reminded of who God is, that God is the Lord of hosts. He is the God of armies. He controls all of the hosts of heaven. They all attend to him. Let me give you some scriptures on this. Isaiah chapter 47, verse 4 says, Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, is his name, the Holy One of Israel. Now, this is important because the Lord of hosts is not just a title, but as many have pointed out, it's more even his name. It's not just a title, but it's actually the name by which he likes to be called. The Lord of hosts. Isaiah 48, verse 2. For they call themselves after the holy city and lean on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Lord of hosts is also a badge that God uses for the eschaton. Why? Because in Amos chapter 4, verse 13, if you know what I'm talking about, the Lord of hosts is also an alert to the people of God, that God is the one who will judge and bring about the end of the age. Why? Because He is the one that will turn the dawn into darkness. He has the power. He has the power to break in and to end the age and to bring in the final consummation that Jesus spoke about, the lightning flashing from the east to the west. Isaiah 4.13 says, He forms mountains, creates the wind, declares to man his thoughts. He who makes the dawn into darkness and he treads on the high places of the earth. The Lord of hosts is his name. See, the God of the prophets is so necessary for you and I today. It is so necessary for 21st century Christians because somewhere along the lines of our evangelical faith, a lot of times it's more like an evangelifish faith. But anyway, we have, just, we have just domesticated God. God has become like our little buddy. You know, I often tell the kids at UNT when I'm preaching, you know, God is not, you know, your cheerleader in the sky. He follows you on Facebook, watches your YouTube videos, and likes your stuff on social media. That's not who God is, okay? God is the transcendent, majestic, omnipotent, infinite God. And we need to wrap our, 
our, our minds around that, not that we can wrap our minds totally around Him, but we need to like what He is trying to elicit from us right now. He's trying to provoke this sort of, sort of enthralled sort of uh, worship of who He is, right? We will fear Him more than we fear our greatest fears. Even as Jesus says, don't fear man. It only kill your body and then do nothing else to you. Wow, it's almost like, well, what's left? Jesus says, I'll tell you who to fear. Truly fear Him who can kill both body and soul in hell. We have really obscured the attributes of God. We need to recover this. And so as the Lord of hosts, this accents His kingship. The fact that He is enthroned. You know, as a matter of fact, repeatedly, 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4, speaks of the Ark of the Covenant upon which was depicted the Lord of hosts sitting above the cherubim. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 2, same thing. Upon the Ark of the Covenant, an artistry work was depicted, the glory of Yahweh depicted the Lord of hosts sitting enthroned above the cherubim. And in Isaiah, who can forget? Isaiah chapter 6, what did he see? Seraphim stood above him, verse 2, each having six wings. With two they covered their face, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. Wait a minute, aren't angels holy? Why they got to cover their feet? In biblical parlance, that's a symbol of shame. Holy angels who stand in the presence of the full glory of God are outweighed in their brilliance and in their glory. They are outshined so much so that holy as they are, angelic as they are, celestial and innocent as they are, they still perceive a lack in themselves. Basically what the angels are saying is we've no right We've no right to stand in the presence of the holy Yahweh. They discover that they grow pale and dim in His presence. Isn't that remarkable? All of this language, whether it's depicted on earthly replicas like the ark or the the tabernacle or the temple or the visionary epiphanies of the heavenly scene, God is portrayed in the context of a regal glory Meredith Klein writes, just to bring a little bit of our Klein group into the pulpit here today, he writes in God, Heaven, and Armageddon on page 6, he says, The glory of the heavenly presence is a royal glory. The glory of a king with myriads of servants in attendance about his throne. So it was in Isaiah's vision of heaven. There are also the familiar great white throne judgment scenes in the vision of heaven of Daniel and in Revelation with the radiant divine judge again seen seated on a fiery chariot throne. For God to depict Himself like this, what He's saying is that on the throne, who sits on the throne is the Lord of hosts. It's the God of armies. He's on a chariot that's on fire because one day He will come with blazing judgment. That's what He's saying. He says, consistently, the center of the unveiled heaven is occupied by the majesty on high, the enthroned king of creation. Architecturally, heaven is a palace 
a royal court. Remarkable. Oh, I just, remarkable. I just, something about that just does it for me. (laughs) The title was all over the worship. The Lord of hosts, that name was all over the worship of Israel in the Psalter. It's found, I have so many verses here, I don't have time to get to them. But what does it say? It says in Psalm, getting, getting actually to the very point that we're trying to make today. Psalm 84, verse 12. The Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in Him. That's the whole point. And one of these days, brothers and sisters, we shall exclaim with the prophet Jeremiah who says in Jeremiah 32, verse 18, God shows loving kindness to thousands. He repays the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of the children. Thereafter, O great and mighty God, the Lord of hosts is His name. But He doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop at His power to judge to protect, to destroy his enemies. He also expresses who he is with the title first and the last. Do you see that there? This is, in other words, this is essentially the equivalent of the Alpha and the Omega. When God claims Alpha and Omega status, what he's saying is that he has total and absolute sovereignty over the realm of time and space, over all of the events of human history and in every sphere, whether heaven, whether earth. God is the only one who can claim to be eternal, infinite, omniscient, sovereign, creator and consummator, author and finisher. That's who he is. That's what he wants us to see. This is, this is the God that has revealed himself to us. And it's absolutely crucial here. I mean, think about how comforting that is if you're one of these families in ancient Israel and God reveals himself as the one who controls all history and all of the events in history. Nothing else is going to come. If that doesn't comfort you, then yeah, you don't have any hope. Because if you're not comforted by the idea that God is in control of all of these seemingly random and radical events that are transpiring like a whirlwind all around you, where is your hope? Where is your, where's your stability? What are you going to stand on? What's your foundation? Because there's nothing outside of that. See, what happens is God understands that when the Assyrians come, so comes their gods. So if they win, they take you captive. The next thing is they're going to want you to bow. <laughs> they're going to want you to bow to their gods. Does bring to mind any examples in the Bible maybe? Yeah, how about Daniel? How about his friends? You know, Meshach, Shadrach, Abednego. Remember what happened to them? Right? Yeah, they were brought into the royal court of the king of Babylon. And what were they told to do? Bow down and worship our God, or we will cast you into the fire. So God knows that if they don't, they don't trust the Lord their God, what will happen is that a foreign God will come into place. And what happens is that behind the scenes of all this, and Isaiah knows this. Isaiah, you know, maybe I should watch news and politics because Isaiah watched it and he, he knew what was going on. He knew that behind the scenes, politically, both Israel and Judah were making maneuvers with foreign powers to secure safety, to secure economy and commerce, okay, and to leverage that power against each other in this internal kingdom battle that they had going on, that part of that security, that leverage, entailed compromise to their spirituality, their deities and their religions and their worldview. 
They know the kings are going to come in here and they're going to say, we'll do this, but we want a temple here for our gods. We'll, we'll provide you protection on this border, but we want to put a temple to Asherah here, to Baal over here. You see? And God despised that. God despised that because He hates idolatry. There is no God beside Him. He is first and He is last. Of, co- of course, you know, we all know that these designations, first, last, alpha, omega, these are, these are descriptions of Jesus Christ Himself showing the absolute Trinitarian dimensions of this title. Now, let's move on to what God does. Look at verse 7. It says, Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation and let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. What God does is that God controls history. God tells the future perfectly. And as He reveals Himself as Alpha and Omega, first and last, God is here expressing His absolute total sovereignty and total omniscience over redemptive history, both past and future, from the time that I established the ancient nation. And uh, that there, uh, some people have taken that to mean not the nation Israel, but Alam, meaning just humanity. It could be saying that. It could be saying that from the very time I gave birth to humanity, I have been telling you the future. You see? And, uh, and he has. And he does. And repeatedly uh, he does that. He follows the rules of the prophetism that he gave in Deuteronomy chapter 18. You remember what he said there? Deuteronomy chapter 18, if a prophet arises, I don't care if it comes from Babylon. I don't care if it comes from Assyria, from Baal doesn't matter, or someone even among you. He says, if a prophet arises, he has to be able to tell you the future perfectly. If he pretends to speak in a vision or in a prophecy, and he pretends that he is speaking on behalf of the Lord, thus saith the Lord, and the thing that he speaks does not come to pass with perfect accuracy, not only will you not listen to that prophet, you will put that prophet to death. That's how much God hates false spirituality and false in the blasphemy, because you're taking upon the name of the true and living God in order to convey your false prophecies. But this, uh, this uh, description here also, this, this reality of God and His sovereignty all of, over all history was also meant to be a comfort. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 4. See, it's not just enough, as our Arminian brethren have erred in saying that God knows the future or He knows some of the future, even if you're worse than Armenian, I guess, is that you misunderstand the whole notion of sovereignty. Sovereignty, biblical sovereignty, is not just that God knows the future. It's much more than that. It's that God has decreed it. How does He know it? Because He decrees it. What's my, what's my text? Acts chapter 4, beginning of verse 25. See, In the same way that Israel sort of was meant to comfort itself with God's sovereignty over what was going on historically at that moment in time, in the same way, analogous to that, is what's happening in the early church with the persecution that's coming there. And how did the early church comfort themselves? With the same exact attributes of God. 
the fact that he is sovereign over everything. His ability to foretell and to recount and his ability to govern and ordain all the things that come to pass. It's a meticulous sovereignty. Spurgeon said, if God is not, God is at, excuse me, Spurgeon, I'm mixing quotes. Oh boy, get my theologians right. A.W. Pink said, if God is not sovereign over all, he is not sovereign at all. Spurgeon said, God is as sovereign over the beam of the sun as the particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam. God is absolutely meticulously sovereign, and we should be gripped with fear. And sadly, sadly, people are more gripped with controversy and infighting than fear and awe. We should put our uh, we should put our hands over our mouths before we begin to question God and His absolute meticulous sovereignty. The early church had no, po- no, not only no, po- no problem with this, they used this as a point of comfort. Verse 25, Acts 4, 25. By the Holy Spirit, God spoke through the mouth of our father David, saying, David, your servant, said, Why do the Gentiles rage that people devise futile things? That's Psalm chapter 2. The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered against the Lord and against His Christ. This is the ultimate antichrist crisis in redemptive history. What? Namely, well, crucifixion. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, i.e. the king of Psalm 2, both Herod, we know what he did, Pilate, we know how guilty he was, even though he tried to wash his hands of it. He is guilty. And he says, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, what? To do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. There is no getting around the sovereignty of God. It is there, it is plain as day, and... um, it will either be the point, and I, I want to be sympathetic here. I don't want to be some brutish Calvinist. I want to say that I know it's philosophically challenging. We've all been there. I remember when I first became awakened to the sovereignty of God. Maybe you guys can resonate with this a little bit. But when I first became aware of the absolute meticulous sovereignty of God, I was, fe- I was filled with anger. So I thought, well, whoa, what about me? I mean, what about free will and all that? God is a gentleman and respect your free will and everything that Billy Graham told me. (laughs) Well, my free will came crashing down on the ground as soon as I recognized, well, the concept of free will is not even in the Bible. It's actually a Neoplatonic concept that goes all the way back to the Greek philosophers. It's not a biblical concept per se. No, 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 no. It's not that men and women are robots. That's not what it is. But it is that God is absolutely meticulously sovereign over all of our affairs. There is no such thing as autonomy. There is no rebel molecule in the universe outside of God's control. He holds the whole universe in the palm of His hand. Brothers and sisters, untold worlds await us that will be permeated with the glory of God. Okay, what does God want? What does God want? Really profound, but... Um, 
Overall, he wants faith. That's what he wants. Same kind of faith that he wanted from Peter. Peter, hold my hand. Come out to the water. Just keep your eyes on me and trust. I'm going to hold you up if you trust me. (laughs) Right? It's like the whole redemptive story right there, right? Like this is what Israel was supposed to do. Trust the Lord on the water. You start looking around, and oh man, whoa, whoa, you're gone. (laughs) God wants three things as I see it. Verse 8. Do not tremble, do not be afraid. And then he says, have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And are you... And are you, uh, and you are my witnesses. There is, is there any God beside me? Or is there any other rock? I know of none. <laughs> How emphatic is that? If God knows of none, <laughs> you ain't going to find one. So, three things. Number one, he wants to impart peace to his people in the midst of their tribulations. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. That is so glorious, so comforting, so wonderful. And he actually grounds this, not leaving the idea of sovereignty just yet. Why? Because look at, look at Isaiah here. Look over in uh, chapter 43. We're going to look at chapter 43, and then we're going to come back to chapter 44. He has already introduced the concept of election as the basis of their tranquility, their peace, their security, their assurance. Isaiah 43, verse 1, But now thus says the Lord your Creator, O Jacob, and He formed you, O Israel. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. Watch this now. I have called you by my name. You are mine. That's what election is. I remember uh, probably about 18 years ago, I had a good friend of mine really struggling with Calvinism. He's really struggling with the doctrines of grace, all of this. And he said he felt impressed upon his heart. He felt as if the Lord was telling him, right, like what came to his mind was, why does it bother you so bad that God chose you and set His love upon you? Why does that bother you so bad? You should be in awe at that. You should be enthralled. And that's what God is saying here is, Jacob, be enthralled that you are mine, that you are my beloved, that I chose you, that I redeemed you. Now look at chapter 44, verse 2. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who helped you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant. That's a reference to the nation of, of Israel and Judah. And you, oh, this is interesting, Yeshurun, whom I have chosen. You ever seen that word before in your Bible? Yeshurun. What is it? Well, what's interesting here is that this Hebrew word is kind of a mystery, even to the grammars. Lexically, in other words, the scholars don't quite know what it is. (laughs) They don't know where it came from. They don't know the etymology of it. They don't know exactly the meaning of it. It's like, wow. But the consensus, according to most commentators and scholars, is that Yeshurun is something of a term of endearment that God sort of 
had, I don't know if he made it up, but that he uses for the nation of Israel. And if there's any sort of connotation that can be kind of generalized, it seems to be rooted in even the lexical root, the idea of righteousness. Because there's a parallel, Numbers chapter 23, verse 10. Numbers 23, verse 10, there the plural is my righteous ones. And it's uh, something like Yeshurim or something like that. And uh, in other words, it may even imply, as John Oswald in his commentary suggests, that it may even imply that the very name implied the duty of Israel because it's spoken in a covenantal context. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, which we'll look at, ironically, we'll look at here in a second, but it's used there within the covenantal making context of Deuteronomy. Yeshurun is used right there, and it could be what it's saying there is that God is calling Israel my righteous ones. In other words, the ones who ought to be righteous, right? And maybe even Christologically of the one that is coming that will be righteous, who will embody Because all Israel's titles are embodied ultimately by the true Israel of God, who is Jesus Christ. That's remarkable. He wants to be, he wants to be uh, the source of our peace, but he also wants to be totally, totally trusted. I mean, the application to our lives, brothers and sisters, is so clear. God still, to this very moment, desires that His people fully, unequivocally trust Him. That we give to Him our total and absolute allegiance. Look at Isaiah 45, verse 21. Again, using the same notion that because of His ability to foretell, to ordain history and foretell the future, God is saying, look, who else are you going to trust? Who else are you going to rely on? Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together, these pagan gods. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord, and and there is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior? There is none except me. Final point. Because of this, or in light of all of this, God also wants to be totally and 100% supreme. In other words, God wants the supremacy. He wants the preeminence in our lives. Uh, Look at the context of chapter 44. I was looking at this and I was like, man, I skipped over a bunch of good stuff. (laughs) Look at verse 1. Now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I had chosen... Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb, who helped you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Yeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And they will spring up among the grass like poplars by the streams of water. Now, up to this point, you're like, whoa, whoa, streams, poplars, what in the world is going on here, right? Anytime you get language like this, where it seems like the picture that's being painted is the springing forth of vegetation and almost an endemic situation. This is all imagery of the eschaton, the new heavens, the new earth, wherein God will create everything anew. Everything will pass away. Everything will be new. So new heavens, new earth, ultimately. And then look at verse 5, because this is my point. This one will say, I am the Lord's. 
that glorious? And that one will call, the, call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, belonging to the Lord. That's glorious. By the way, uh, that verse there could be, if you take the Hebrew to be as the NASB has it here, to write on his hand. It's kind of like what you see with the antithesis of that, the mark of the beast in Revelation, right hand or the forehead. That is in, in biblically imagery of ownership. Uh, I don't know that we need to be looking for computer chips as much as what we're saying is that you, if you have chosen to identify with this evil fallen world system, you are marked in a sense, with the stamp of ownership that you belong to the beast and to the Antichrist system, which is Babylon. Wow. But anyway, the, 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 the true uh, ownership here is that we belong to the Lord, <laughs> not to the anti-Lord, but to the Lord, and we'll name Israel's name with honor. So glorious. And so God says at the end of all this, brothers and sisters... Is there any other rock? So I ask you today, is there any other rock? Is there any other rock in your life? We know that we know the obvious. No, there's no other gods, no other religions, there's there's no other pagan deities that we're worshiping. Okay. What about practically? What about practically? Practically, Israel was trusting in their money their economy, the stability of their nation, their politicians, their rulers. This is why in chapter, uh, chapter 2 of, uh, of uh, Isaiah, he's going to wipe out the rulers. <laughs> he's going to say, I'm going to take all your strong people, your rulers, your princes, gone. He's kind of like kicking out the legs from under their stool. He said, why? It's because you're leaning too much on that stuff. And so for each and every one of us, brothers and sisters, what are our coping mechanisms is it prayer is it communion with god is it faith in what he can do your life will show it it will show where you put your interests jesus said where your money is there is your heart that's just one example where we put our money, where we put our time, where we put our passion, where do we put, where do we invest our priorities in our lives, and how much of that is spiritually oriented around honoring the name of God? Where is our allegiance? Where is our dedication, our devotion to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, to the Rock Eternal? God is the way I see it. Here is God is graciously telling us. Don't be a fool. Don't trust in all this stuff. Can't do anything for you. Don't veg out. That's your coping mechanism. So easy to do. Don't just mindlessly surf. You see? No, no, no. Seek Him. Seek His kingdom. I don't have time. I have a whole other page here, which you guys know me. That's like 45 more minutes. So what I, oh man, see, <laughs> what I was going to tell you is that the word rock, maybe I should say this. Okay, I don't, I'm going on vacation. I don't want to have regrets. This will, see, this is, you don't understand. On the plane, it'll eat me up. The word rock comes from Deuteronomy. You want to turn there real quick with me? 
Because it's not just something that Isaiah invented. It's not just an arbitrary thing. You know, it sounds good. It preaches good. You know, pastors like to talk about the rock. No, 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 no. The rock is the covenantal name of God. Title. In other words, he reveals himself as he makes the covenant with the children of Israel. He reveals himself to them as their rock. Deuteronomy 32, beginning of verse 4. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness, without injustice, righteousness and upright is he. Look at verse 15. But Yeshurun, there's that word again. Israel, Judah, they became fat and kicked. You are grown fat, thick, sleek. In other words, they, came, they, they, they became like complacent spiritually. Then he forsook God who made him, wow, and scorned the rock of his salvation. Verse 18, you neglected the rock who begot you and forgot the God who gave you birth. Verse 30, how could one chase a thousand and two put ten thousands to flight unless the rock had sold them? He gave their enemies into their hands. The Lord had given them up. Indeed, their rock is not like our rock. Even the enemies of God's people know that. Wow. Verse 37. Verse 37 is getting back to the question I just supposedly left you with. Now I bring you back. He will say, where are their gods? The rock in which they sought refuge. What a terrible tale for the history of Israel that though they had the rock, they had the power, they had the source of true safety, stability, prosperity, provision, and providence. They forfeited the true and living God and they went after those things which are not God's. And in the end, what did they get? Covenant curses. You know what's going to happen in Isaiah? They're going to be taken off to Babylon. Their kids are going to be slaughtered in the streets. Think of it. Think of the horror of apostasy. And that's what happens, brothers. There's nothing worse than when a person forgets their God, turns their back on their God, apostatizes from the faith, and goes back off into the world, and you just see utter destruction in the wake. Oh, I've seen it too many times. And it's, it's a tragedy. It's a spiritual tragedy. Let us not be like that. Brothers and sisters, in childlike faith, let us come to the rock, found, found our lives there, build our lives there, and stay there and don't move. Not to the right, not to the left. Father, Lord, such obedience is not of our own doing. Such devotion does not reside within us in some moralistic superiority way or something. It's not because we are hyper-spiritual. It's not because we are mighty in of ourselves or we're dedicated. No, no, no. The very rock that sustains us is the rock that provides that power to us. And so, Lord, ultimately, by Your grace and for Your glory, would You... Strengthen us to abide, to abide in your Son, to abide in your Word, so that we could have that truly vital union with Christ, so that from Him we can draw out all of our sustenance, all of our satisfaction, 
and find all of our safety, peace, and security. In Jesus' name, amen.